Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Game Football Podcast with myself, Hugh Wizencroft, and we'll have to stop acting soon. Like, football is all sorts of incredible right now because, frankly, it's just the new normal, isn't it? It means last-minute drama on Merseyside, North London and West London. Nobody seems to know the rules of football anymore either. And we're about to have a European holiday. Why not, given everything that's going on in the world? It's another mad weekend uh, in the Premier League and the Champions League returns to help me through it all. James Restall, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson. Hello, guys. Hello, Hugh. How Hi, are Hugh. you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Uh, it feels like it's, it's... I don't know what's going on. Mercury's in retrograde or something. Everyone's woken up today feeling groggy. Everyone. Everyone I've spoken to is just not feeling great. You guys all right? Yeah, Grant. Not too yeah, bad. sleep. Not too bad. Okay. No, I wouldn't say groggy. Grumpy, maybe, but then that's that's me most days, so I wouldn't read too, <laughs> I wouldn't read too much into that. Uh, well, there's a few fans up and down the country feeling the same way uh, because the Premier League was back with a bang, wasn't it, after the uh, international break. We'll start in North London. What a game. What an end uh, to that game. Spurs three up with just nine minutes to play. They drew three all with London rivals West Ham. Manuel Lanzini... A stunning equaliser. Henry Winter writes in the Times, the world was reminded again of the compelling impulsiveness of the Premier League. Um, I think West Ham did brilliantly, um, but I think it's another chapter of results that it seems it's just more likely to happen without fans, a team coming back with nine minutes left from three goals down. Tom, I'll start with you. Was it was it West Ham brilliance? Was it a Tottenham capitulation? You've got to say it's probably a Tottenham capitulation, haven't you? Oh, we should also just say very quickly, and this is of absolutely no comfort to Tottenham fans whatsoever, but that first 15 minutes were fantastic. Um, they were absolutely brilliant. Harry Kane again decided that he's, you know, as well as being a great striker, he's also Kevin De Bruyne, Mark II. Um, I don't think you can give full credit to West Ham in terms of, their comeback. I don't think it was a piece of strategic genius. But for me, one thing I would be interested in, and this is probably for Gregor to answer, is I was watching the game and I was remarked on how West Ham, if you reflect on it, stayed in the game at 3-0, if that makes any sense whatsoever. You, you know, you're 3-0 down after 15, 16 minutes. As a player, you know, I saw Declan Rice running around and harrying, still as harrying is still if it was nil-nil. And, and obviously if it had gone four or five, then it really is game over. But they kept in the game, which does give you a chance if you get that goal as you do and everyone picks up the ball and runs, runs, gets it out of the net and runs back to the centre circle. And that's when you then, the flip side of that is that it plants the seed of doubt into a team 
who potentially aren't tough enough mentally, which is what Jose Mourinho said. I'd be interested if Gregor, as a player, when you go 3-0 down, is there? should we be giving West Ham credit? Are they going to be going, right, lads, lads, let's just damage limitation here. Let's try and not concede for 20 minutes and then then we'll start planning the comeback. Of course they deserve credit, yeah. I mean, if you're 3-0 three, three nil, three nil down after 15 minutes... The- no, but should we give them any credit in terms of a, a level of you know planning or actual thought? Obviously, they deserve credit for the, you know, the, the approach at the end and throwing Lanzini on and it's an incredible goal. But I'm interested in the psychology of the period in between that where three goals in the first 15 minutes, three goals in the last nine... On, as a player on the pitch, what are they thinking? I think initially you're thinking we don't want this to be five or six. So there is an element of just kind of batting down the hatches and you don't want this to be a complete embarrassment. As, uh, undoubtedly, if you're 3-0 down that quickly, that's the first thought. And then the longer you you kind of get a foothold, if you can call it that, in the game, when you're three, even though you're still 3-0 down, you're right, you think if you get... Because if, it's the same when you're 3-0 up. If you actually, if you concede one goal... You know, there's little seed of doubt enters, enters your head. So the psychology is quite is quite interesting in that. And as you said, the the fact that fans aren't there, like I, I, there's been a lot of conversation about what impact that's having. And I, the thing I said, I said this last season actually was, I always felt that fans they almost acted like a comfort blanket to me, which particularly when I was defending, it was like you made sure that. You're, you know, I don't know. They heightened your senses a little bit more. And if if I, I was a fullback and I'm playing as a winger, I felt if I played in an empty stadium or in a kind of reserve game somewhere or whatever, you felt more kind of naked and exposed. And I think I don't know. I think that that is changing the psychology a little bit of how of of football at the moment. I think it's it's making it harder for teams to defend. So um, West Ham, as soon as they got that first goal, but still three. 3-0 down with that that little time to go you're you're you've, you think there's no chance still and it was just one of those moments you just love to see when the manager's hearing off onto the pitch David Moyes and the players are all it's pure unbridled joy it's quite rare you know to see that that level of kind of sheer happiness on the pitch so it's an unbelievable moment I guess that's what I'm interested in in that they obviously deserve credit for those nine minutes but to me West Ham and David Moyes perhaps deserve credit for it being nil-nil in the intervening period, if that makes any sense. Because without that, without stopping the procession of goals that it looked like was going to happen, the, the the amazing climax doesn't happen at the end. And I think that's perhaps what you can see David Moyes at least instilled in this West Ham team. Uh, a sense of pride that even when you can see three brilliant early goals, there's a, come on, right, let's be solid. Let's not concede for 10 minutes. Okay, let's not concede till half time. You know, and I'm sure the the conversation at halftime was let's keep it tight, and then I'll throw Manuel on, and we'll 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 get a remarkable draw. This genius from Moisey, genius. Had there been fans in the ground, a team goes three 0 down after 15 minutes. We've seen this often with with lots of teams when that happens. The fans often get on the backs of the players, and the the, the atmosphere can become quite negative. And I just wondered whether the players might have had a bit more belief because there was no negativity from the crowd and they, they're sort of they're, they're able to hang in the game that way because it must be horrible when you when you're playing sort of so badly and have such a bad start and then all the negativity comes in happens to teams you know any team that goes 3-0 down I'm just wondering whether that was a factor as well my, well my look my view on it is it's funny by the time you got to half time of that game you had the feeling that you were watching a 0-0 like aside from the actual scoreline in the top corner, because 
it, the the period that like you know after 15 minutes I was messaging mates you know West Ham are going to concede six or seven here but then by half time you're like well this is a pretty even encounter you know he didn't have that feeling that Tottenham were, were running West Ham ragged by half time you know basically not necessarily to say they took their feet off the gas like West Ham played some decent stuff and I I think there was a feeling of you know let's not be disrespected here we're West Ham they're Spurs you know and the minimum we can do now is just keep fighting. But they played some decent stuff. And I, I actually wonder whether the mentality has changed full stop, not necessarily because there's no fans in the crowd, but because of the crazy scorelines we've seen. Like, I think it's acknowledged now by the players that just about anything can happen. One becomes two, two becomes three. And look, teams have conceded, you know, like you're sitting there, you're West Ham United, you're going at half time, you go, well, Villa scored seven against Liverpool. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, you know, if they can do that, then we, we can score three against Spurs. And... There is, it's a weird one, you know, this self-belief factor in terms of the team. It's it's almost like just keep playing. Let's just keep playing and see what happens. And I think that was it. When they had, the, you know, the bit between their teeth, they got a goal. It, I think when the first goal went in, I think we all thought, all oh, the three all's on. You know, it wasn't even the, when the second one went in. You know, the first one went in, we all went, they can definitely score two more goals before the end. Where usually you'd be saying, well, they've got one. You know, if they get another, it's going to be a nervy end. That's what the commentators would have been saying. But in fact, Balbena scored and it was like, right, game on. So I think there is a difference, not just because the fans are in the crowd, aren't in the crowd, excuse me, um, but because the self-belief factor, the mentality is just so different now. You know, even if you're West Ham or any team in the Premier League, they surely go into every game now saying we can win. It doesn't, even, it doesn't matter what team you are. You know, and I think that's a huge difference in terms of the Premier League. I think certainly on a flip point to that, as well as the positivity, you'll certainly hear Jose Mourinho referencing this next time people complain, why aren't you a bit more attacking? Why did you make such a negative substitution? I wonder if Jose could have his time again in the 72nd minute, whether he'd decide to bring on Gareth Bale and Harry Winks and then just shortly after that, Lucas Moura. Because let's be honest, Gareth Bale and Harry Kane counter-attacking in the 92nd minute at 3-2. Bale played played in, misses a chance you'd probably expect him to score. We wouldn't really be having this conversation. We'd be having a conversation about Gareth Bale and the brilliance of Spurs and Harry Kane and how frightening they are. Yeah, but I think, I think, I think, the thing, I think Bale's uh, cameo was actually a huge positive in the long run for Spurs because, yeah, okay, he missed that. He should have scored that chance. And nine times out of 10, Bale would score that chance. But relatively peripheral 18 minutes, gets put through, has a brilliant chance. He'll probably score those next time. What a great piece of firepower to be able to bring off the bench. And in a more tight game, um, he might well be the difference. And I think we saw evidence. I mean, it, it was it was brilliant build-up play, a brilliant bit of skill from him. And this is a guy that's been on the golf course for the last six months. So, you know, that's, I, I, I think it's a positive that. He did look like he'd been on the golf course for the last six months because he was absolutely <laughs> blowing after that. But they, they zoomed in on him. I was like, wow, they're going to have to do some more fitness work with Gareth Bale if we're going to see that every week. Um, but just on Tottenham, and look, it, maybe it was a, a total collapse. In fact, it definitely was England cricket style. But is this the story of Spurs' season? Are we about to see Harry Kane and Son brilliant going forward, but the defence, Gregor, the weakness and the issue that they didn't address in the summer in terms of players coming in a centre-back is going to be their problem? I mean, it does look like, I think, as long as you have Serge Aurier in your team as well, the, you've, there's a good chance you're going to concede a goal. I mean, you know, he gave away that free kick 
that led to the goal. And it was just a kind of petulant kick. He, he went too tight and then, and I can't remember who it was, but he spun away and he just sort of flicked out his leg, gave away such a cheap free kick at that time of the game. Um, obviously, a lot had to happen and it, it was, you know, Winks intercepted and it was a wonderful strike, but that put the team under pressure. And they've, they've also not been great at, con- at defending set pieces and obviously the, another one came from an own goal. So I think there are, we'll probably talk about this a bit more with Chelsea too, there, there is something about individual errors at the moment. I don't know... <sighs> Perhaps it's just personnel. We've talked, we've spoken about this. There seems to be when you're talking about the, the the wild kind of volume of goals at the moment. There seems to be lots of little factors, and one of them is the quality of defenders. There's no doubt about it. And I think if you look around all the all the top teams, there's a fragility defensively in them, partly because of individuals and sometimes because of kind of the system. I don't think it is the system with Spurs. I just think they have players who either let somebody go at a set piece or they give away stupid fouls and, and it's costing them at the moment. Well, then let's move on because I think we're going to talk about defences in terms of the next two matches as well. We'll start on Merseyside. It, it was a derby that had just about everything. It hinged on two main incidents, though, a lunging challenge from Everton keeper Jordan Pickford. That means Liverpool's Virgil van Dijk is now out for a reported eight months. How huge could that be for their title challenge? And the smallest of offside margins as well, which meant a would-be Liverpool winner was ruled out as it finished Everton 2, Liverpool 2. And it was, look, it was a Merseyside derby that everyone was looking forward to, including us. We'll start with Jordan Pickford and that challenge. Was it violent conduct? Was it serious foul play? Should it have been a red card? Does anyone really know the rules of football anymore, including the people out there in the middle of the park, to be perfectly frank with you? Um, Who wants to talk about that Jordan Pickford challenge? Some people were outraged, and I'm not one of them. Tom, go ahead. I think it's interesting with the Pickford challenge. Obviously, there's a lot of reflective uh, viewpoints on it now that we know Virgil van Dijk's out for so long, massive player in a massive team. There is something to be said, I think, and Gregor might contradict me on this, but it, it, it was a dangerous challenge in that he was off the floor, it was out of control. But there is an element, surely, with the fact that he is a goalkeeper. And, you know, you could, you've heard lots of goalkeepers. Peter Schmeichel said it down the years. Lots of others said that it, a, a goalkeeping technique is to make yourself big, throw yourself at the ball or the player. They do they do it when they run out to run at a striker's feet or to smother the ball. They they dive f- forward with a forward momentum with their whole body at a striker or a for you know attacking player's feet. And yes, the way that in which Pickford moved with the legs spread and he kind of clamped down and snapped on. Van Dyke's leg doesn't look great, but I do think there's an element where we have to analyse it from a goalkeeping perspective. If that had been a left back making that challenge, or a or a you know outfield player, and they've gone in with their feet like that, then obviously. But there's an element of where your natural instinct as a goalkeeper make yourself big, smother the ball, take the ball and the man, etc., etc. It's a Merseyside derby. That was Pickford's instinct. There was no instinct of I'm going to clean him out in in a negative and make an injury sense. It was, I'm going to take the ball, I'm going to smother, I'm going to make myself big. And as a result, that challenge happens. So to me, there, there should be an element of uh, reflection on the fact that he's a goalkeeper. But Greg is about to... Uh, no, no, I, I kind of agree and I don't. I think this tr- everything you say is true about the the kind of mechanics of what he did. Although it kind of also feeds into how absolutely mad and reckless this guy is on the pitch sometimes. Uh you know, it, it was pretty far to 
to hear out to a player that's at quite a tight angle. I think, you know, that was peculiar in itself that he did it. But you're right, it's like, it's you know, it's been called assault and things. It's not an assault. Like, no matter how bad the stills look like, uh, look, um, you know, when it's slowed down to such slow motion. So, but I, part of me also thinks it doesn't matter. It's like endangering the player to that extent and what is what, you know, what the result has been as well. It doesn't really matter what his sort of intentions. And I kind of, I fight myself when I'm thinking that too, because I find a lot of challenges now. I think back to Harry Maguire's sending off for England, the second yellow card. I think to myself, he tried to hook the ball away and then his foot followed through and caught the player on the ankle. So it's kind of an after effect of, you know, the intent to drag the ball away. Sometimes that's quite a, that's quite a modern phenomenon in that you can win the ball now and the follow-through can be deemed reckless and dangerous and, a, and be a sending off. So, you know, I, I think, but I think when it's, I think it doesn't matter now. That's the, the truth is it doesn't matter if you endanger the player and you, and it's that reckless and dangerous. It doesn't matter what your intention was and it, it should have been sent off. Absolutely. And it, and it really is quite damning that they were analysing the offside to such an extent that they kind of overlooked <laughs> the fact that uh, Van Dijk had been chopped in two. I think it's an, an interesting one, Gregor. I was going through the IFAB laws last night, trying to decipher whether I could come to a definite conclusion as to whether Jordan Pickford should have been sent off. And I don't think it was violent conduct because I think it was a challenge, albeit an awful challenge, and therefore it would fall into the category of serious foul play. And at the start of that section, it says the ball has to be in play. However, it then later in that section under the IFAB laws talks about a player being able to be sent off for violent conduct and serious foul play during a period where the ball is not in play. So I, I couldn't tell which one should be the appropriate rule, whether he should have been sent off for serious foul play, whether the ball was in or out. And I know that the offside then would be the, the difference between a red card or not, which also seems to be very, very strange, you know, and that seems to be what they've rested on in terms of making a decision on, on Pickford. Um, but, but in a way, I think he's unlucky in that he, I think he's trying to make a save rather than a tackle and that he's flown through the air off the ground because he thinks Virgil van Dijk's going to volley it basically. And because Virgil van Dijk pulls out of the volley, he then just goes through Virgil van Dijk and, because he's already in the air, there's nothing he can do to stop that. And it's unfortunate because as a goalkeeper, you've, I think you've got to try and make a save there. And that's what he tries to do. And yet, I know he does try and kick the ball and ends up scissoring Virgil van Dijk's leg, which is planted in the ground and that results in an ACL injury. Um, but I think a lot of the judgment is based on the fact that, one, it's not just a player being injured, but it's Virgil van Dijk, probably the best defender in the league, being injured. And, and, and in that case, we're like, oh my word, you know, this is so big. And Jordan Pickford, what on earth is he doing? How dare he injure Virgil van Dijk? And I don't know if we would have been talking about it if, you know, James Tompkins would have been injured in this incident. So I think I think it's it's a difficult one for a journalist to try and hammer Pickford when he might not have been getting the same hammering had it not been Virgil van Dijk. Well, I think, I mean, well, going back to your point on the laws, um, Hugh, when I spoke to Peter Walton yesterday, he said, you know, just because the whistle's gone doesn't give players a license to have a free hit, basically. And, and, that, and that accounts for serious foul play as well. And he said, he said, first of all, was astonished that the on-field referee didn't spot it 
but also the fact that there was a clear human error with VAR. And um, he, 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 Peter's view was because the incidents were so close together, the offside is fractionally before the the foul. It is it is it still counts as serious foul play if if you take violent conduct out of it. And I think that I think that seems logical and a and a fair interpretation of the rules. Um, in terms of, I, I do think I do think you're absolutely right when it comes to the profile of the player being injured, um, or, or even you know I remember when um, when Ryan Shawcross I think did a particularly horrendous challenge against an Arsenal player a few years ago. Um, he was almost more demonised because it was Stoke and that was their reputation and they were, they were, they were kind of a more physical team. Um, I think when you take all of the kind of context out of it, my view would still be that this was a, this was a sign of Pickford being reckless, not, not intentionally reckless, but his decision-making has been quite erratic in, in, in recent weeks and months. And he has got that tendency to kind of fly off his feet and, and go maybe slightly too early um, with a save or, or, or with a block. And it ends up costing Everton one way or another. Later in the game, the offside, he probably should have saved that shot from, from Henderson. Um, and I think he's, I think he's been let off. I think, you know, he, almost the fact that we're focusing on Virgil van Dijk's in, uh, injury almost masks the fact that yet again, two big moments that imagine if either of those two moments happened in, 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 in the quarterfinals of Euro 2021, as we call it now. And he, and he caught, you know, the, the, the incident gets spotted, uh, England are out. I just, you know, I just want to say, <laughs> reiterate that, you know, what Pickford's, uh, whether he's kind of been erratic, whether what the kind of, what the nuts and bolts of a goalkeeper coming out like that, you know, what, none of it matters. It was the, it was the end result. That's the truth. That's the truth now. And that's why I referenced the attack like Harry Maguire's or, there's a similar there's something a common theme in that in that it doesn't really matter you can even win the ball now he could have won the ball and what he did to what he did to endanger Van Dyke is what all it takes for it to be deemed reckless and worth of a red card I, th- I think you're right and I'm I I should obviously make clear as well before the Liverpool fans turn up at my flat that I'm not saying that it wasn't you know couldn't be deemed a red card and it wasn't a horrible tackle but I do think if we're heading down that route, Gregor, have we not got to be careful when it comes to goalkeepers? Because, you you know, and Hugh, you've talked about the rules and endangering an opposition player. If a goalkeeper comes steaming out from his goal line into a crowd of players for a free kick, say, that are gathered around the penalty spot, maybe the edge of the box, that's a 10-yard sprint, jumps in the air to punch the ball, you know, misses or just about gets it, and in the process, wipes out a guy who's stood in front of him, watching the ball in front of him, no, nothing to do with the goalkeeper, wipes him out, concussed, knocked down, bang, straight on the floor. Is that a red card? Is that... In de- because that's dangerous. That's endangering a player, be it his opposition or not. I'm not saying that is what Jordan Pickford did. Jordan Pickford was a, it was targeted at Van Dyke and winning the ball, and in the process, he endangered the player. But there is a if we're going down that route, I think it's dangerous, particularly when it comes to goalkeepers, because that's one thing you often say. Pundits are here all the time. You want your goalkeeper to command his area. Want you want him to be in charge. You know, you were a defender. Surely that was the best feeling in the world when you saw a goalkeeper just flash past you in a you know power pace speed, aggression, claim the ball, maybe he wipes you out, maybe he wipes the striker out, but he's got the ball and thank God I didn't have to win the header. Oh, look, you make a very good point. And actually, you know, as I said, I was a bit conflicted in that because as a defender, I see tackles now and I think, 
And I, I almost put Maguire's into that again. I, you know, what he, he saw what he was trying to do. He was trying to hook the ball away and then his, his leg was, you can't, so you can't do the first action and then make your leg disappear and, you know, it's not coming into contact with the player. But that's this, all I'm saying is that is now modern football. It doesn't matter what the what your intent intention is. It doesn't matter what the action was before. It doesn't matter even if you win the ball. If you endanger a player to to that extent, you're going to get a red card. And the end result, Virgil Van Dijk, eight months out. How do we think Liverpool are going to cope without him? And is this a title deciding injury, if you like? Don't think it's necessarily title deciding, but I think it's going to be fascinating watching what teams do against Liverpool now. Um, I remember doing a, we did a bit of analysis after the first four games, and teams massively attacked Liverpool down the side that Van Dijk doesn't play on. Um, they target the other centre half, and I just just watching the first few moments after Van Dijk left the field on Saturday. And it looked like Dominic Calvert-Lewin had an extra spring in his step because suddenly he had another centre-half he could attack. He suddenly had another option to go for a cross. And I think it's going to be fascinating. It's going to, bring, it's going to put extra pressure, I think, on, um, on, on Andy Robertson now because I think, that, I, think, I think teams will go down the left as well as the right. And, um, and it's going to be really interesting to see how can Liverpool play with such a high line. It's going to be fascinating to see tactically what happens now. It's as big as... As Laporte last season for for City, basically, um, I remember doing a piece last season about even Man City scored more goals because of Laporte because he came out, he came out and you know stepped into the opposition's half and and was creator as well. And Van Dijk does the same with his kind of spreads diagonal balls around the pitch and he's, you know, the presence, everything. He's yeah, I know, <laughs> I know people were taking the mick about how how kind of. People are saying he's he's the best defender in the world, and he, you know he's had a couple of great seasons. But he is, I can't think of anyone bigger, and he's he's huge for for Liverpool. So the other thing is Gomez and and Matip have never started a Premier League game as a partnership, so this is a complete unknown for them. And one's been very patchy in his form, Gomez, and Matip has been very inju- injury prone. So yeah, it's a there's no no bigger you know there's no player that they would have w- wanted to lose less than. Than Van Dijk, it's clearly a massive blow for Liverpool, and he's a fantastic player to watch. And as Gregor said earlier, in these days of no good defenders, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big big time for the likes of Michael Keane and James Tarkovsky and the others to make their name as the Premier League's best centre back without Virgil Van Dijk uh, up against them. But I do Liverpool are incredibly strong as well, and I think the best thing that they could do would almost to be not drawn into the aura of Virgil Van Dijk. If they're going to be successful this season, we are obviously all going to be drawn into the aura of Virgil van Dijk. The fans understandably are. But the worst thing they can do is to already start making the narrative of this season about Jordan Pickford ruined our season, etc., etc. They've got a world-class squad. Yes, they are weak in defence. Yes, they are weak without Virgil van Dijk. But this is a weird old Premier League season. And... Look at look at the top of the table. Everton are doing brilliantly. Aston Villa are doing brilliantly. Their normal rivals haven't started that great. Even Manchester City and all their spending in the summer don't look fully settled yet. So I, I'd, I'd still have high hopes for Liverpool's season if I was a Liverpool fan. And I would also say that if we've learned one thing about this Liverpool machine, both on the pitch is also the great success off it. And if Virgil van Dijk is out for the season, I wouldn't be surprised to see in the next transfer window... 
Michael Edwards and his team are already plotting. Who can we bring in? Fine, if we have to throw a massive loan fee at someone, maybe a loan with an option to buy, maybe we'll accelerate the signing of that young defender we had penciled in for next summer. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the, the planning will already be there. You've seen it with their, their transfer signings across the pitch in every position. They're well-planned. You know, in the left in the summer, they wanted a left back. They went for Jamal Lewis. They got over, over, you know, overpriced quotes. So they went for someone else. They already had the structure in place. They will have, I'm certain, a list of centre backs that they wanted to sign. It was an area of their squad that was weak. I wouldn't be surprised to see that accelerated or slightly changed in the next transfer window, which frighteningly is only not that far away. The, the big test is going to be those next few months, really, because. I, I agree with you, Clarkie. I think they will. I think they will. Um, they, they they will do something in January uh, to address this. Uh, but I mean, you mentioned Aura, and Paul Joyce writes it in his match report very well this morning in the game. The Aura that Van Dyke possesses was seen in the first six minutes before he got injured, when he followed through on James Rodriguez to let Everton's most creative player know that he was there, and then he did a cheeky little foul on Dominic Calvert Lewin to let him know. You're not going to have much joy past me today, son. And he coming back after a 7-2 humiliation against Aston Villa, Van Dijk made it his mission to impose himself on the game, set the tone and say to Liverpool, right, we've got control. We're going to dictate this. We're going to get back to winning ways. And straight away, they score a, a wonderful goal um, through Mane. And it's, it's who in the Liverpool team is going to step up and do that? Is Joe Gomez going to do that? Is Joel Matip going to do that? And you're looking ahead to uh, to the Ajax game this week, and you've got no Allison, who is, is equally as important as Virgil Van Dijk in terms of making them solid. You've got no Van Dijk, and you've got no Thiago Alcantara. You're, you're ripping a spine out of that team. So, really, this will be if 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 Liverpool are top of the league come January when they can strengthen again, uh, that will be a, an almighty achievement by Jurgen Klopp, I think. I think they definitely can be, but there's one scary uh, parallel potentially for Liverpool fans, which Hugh, I don't know whether if you remember, 1997-98, Manchester United early in the season, Captain Kino, similar level of aura and quality and ability, knee injury. We'll, you know What happened that season? United finished second, went out of the Champions League of the quarterfinal stage and the FA Cup in the fifth round. So I, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing the idea of losing your talisman and most important player having a massive impact on you. But um, I, I think they can be top at Christmas and then I think they'll strengthen and then I think they'll still win the league. Oh, you go further back, Clocky, as well. I think Blackburn players will 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 will, uh, will frequently mention that it was uh, it gave them a huge boost that Cantona was unavailable for the back end of the ninety four ninety five season. You know, it's, it, it's you take out a talisman, but let's see what happens. I just find it insane. Anyway, I just find it so mad that this comment that has been made in in football grounds and and pubs and and households on the sofa over the past two years, you know. <laughs> Well, what if Van Dyke was injured? Then what? You know, for Liverpool has actually come to fruition in the strangest, strangest way. And we wish Virgil Van Dyke all the best. And I'm sure he'll be back stronger for his time away. Um, the offside call, though, it was extremely marginal. It decided the game. Liverpool fans were absolutely furious. Everton fans delirious. So afterwards, the Jurgen Klopp calling it, you know, 
a game killer and these decisions and VAR, you know, destroying the game we love. This is, I think, the fourth or fifth thing that so far this season destroyed the game, by the way. Does he have any kind of a point or is that just frustration? It depends on your view on both this and the kind of tackles we were talking about before. You know, Gregor was saying that a lot of these tackles by the letter of the law are dangerous and therefore they're red cards. By the letter of the law, if you've got a blue line and a red line and your fingertips over it, you know, it, it's offside. I hate it. I'd hate to see it come down to the level of football that I watch. Um, but it, it depends on your viewpoint. There is also an element of with VAR and offsides and things where there's been such a thirst for, we can't have this happen, we can't have this happen. And it's almost like the scary, uh, scary idea that we let the robots take over and let the machines take over. And now we've decided we hate it. But he's got a point, of course he has. But in the current guys, it is offside, isn't it? Yeah, the lawmakers had the per- have had the perfect opportunity. We, ha- we were having these debates all through last season. The lawmakers have had a very good opportunity to introduce a clear daylight rule or thicken the lines or you know, there were loads of different suggestions mooted and nothing's happened. So I don't really think we can be that outraged that this has happened because it's it's the law. And you know I think the only thing that's changed is we've gone from an armpit to the outside of a T-shirt. Um, but We you know, can be depressed t- though, can we? Oh, of course we can be depressed. I mean, it's, it really it's, is. It's, it's like, I don't know. I've, but it's, I've had enough with it all now. I really have. No, no Gregor, no. I have, I've had enough of our. I know, like yeah, I've quick, said this many times. Someone talk about Scotland and how great they are again. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Somebody, what was it? Some match of the day too last night when you're thinking of, you know, that was a moment of joy. Imagine if West Ham's goal or, you know, something had been cut off. There's, there's moments of like that that are I'm with are you. Such marginal the first thing, little things. First thing I thought was, what's has, Imagine, is there a push yeah. in the box? David Moyes is tearing yeah. onto the pitch. Exactly. I'm, like with you. I'm with people's you. People's tearing off their strips and then VAR. No, sorry, guys. It's just. Uh, I, and the, the fact, you know, we can't be certain it's offside. It's not possible to be certain. The frames aren't, you know, we don't, the technology really, no matter what people say, it's not, it's not definitive. I totally agree with you, but we're, we're going back over old ground. I, I said at the time, there needs to be a bit of an umpire's call when it comes to those really tight offsides. And it almost needs to be, did the lineup put its flag up? Then it's off. If he didn't, then, you know, whatever was ruled on the pitch stands, basically. Um, I mean, I don't think anyone would have complained if that goal stood. Well, Everton fans, clearly, but I don't think they would have been screaming offside. Um and it's just one of those things that I think, I think look, James, I don't know what you think. You know, I, what's interesting to me is, you know, being part, a major part in law changes in the sport as a whole, it's always all right when it's ruining other leagues and it starts just starts to ruin ours. And it's like, right, this rule needs to be immediately changed. And you get pundits and ex-players and ex-chairmen saying the game's gone. And you're like, well, we did it. And... You know, we didn't have a problem with it two seasons ago when it was destroying the Spanish league, you know, or whatever. And that's something that leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I just, but I, I think we've had, as a, as a, as a fan base in the UK, we've had a year of evidence to examine, um, and I think looking at it so closely, it's clear what the problem is with it. And I don't know whether these arguments have been made in Germany, Spain, and Italy, but surely there is a common sense way of fixing this that the lawmakers have had a perfect opportunity to fix and they haven't taken it. I mean, if you want my, my, my personal view is um, you stick a timer on it and you say 30 seconds, if you can't draw your lines within 30 seconds, it's an umpire's call. It's a marginal decision and we move on. 
um, because that way you then have you then keep the same kind of technology, you keep the same consistency, and it kind of you know it, it, it kind of adheres to what the principles of VAR are, which is clear and obvious errors. And I think that's something lost. That is, that's no more. That's some, gone. No, but something that's gone that is, forever. Something I don't I don't agree. I think something that is something for offside that is clear and obvious is when the guy is clearly offside. And if you're looking at it by by millimeters, you shouldn't be needing. But if, ref- if, if the referee decides, uh, sorry, if if the the VAR at Stockley Park doesn't hasn't have, doesn't have enough time to to make the correct decision, uh, they're still going to be pouring over it in TV studios. So a minute later, they will pull up the, and say they got this decision wrong. So I don't I don't think that's possible. I think that you know it has to be definitive. But how it's made definitive, I don't know. Without taking these ridiculously marginal de- decisions that are like. And some of them aren't even really affecting the, you know, it's that where Manny was didn't affect where the defenders were. They didn't affect the defenders' action. It didn't. None of it did because he was in line. How do you think you'd have played with this, Gregor? If you'd have played knowing there was VAR, do you think it's affecting players, defenders? Do you think it's causing them to drop deeper quicker? Do you think they're they're maybe even playing a higher line, trying to step out? Well, some teams are trying to play a higher line. I mean, we've spoken about Liverpool doing this. It's it's. Level is no longer on site. There's more chance of it being offside because you could have a stray foot or a toenail or a sleeve. So, really, it's favouring the defender, and it shouldn't really be doing that. And I'm a defender. Saying that seems silly. Me saying this, you know, when people say it should be any body part being on site, and you think, you know, all these different ideas that people have had about how how to fix this, that would seem to me like a clear advantage to the attacker. But I think even as a defender, I would rather that because. I don't know. It just feels like goals that should be, well should be goals are being are being are being chalked off for decisions that are just yeah. I, I, I don't know what to say. I've lost. Finished with it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's gone, ladies and gentlemen. He's thrown his headset Sorry. down and stormed out. He's had enough. Vias finished him off. Yeah, and he sounds a lot like Frank Lampard did at full time at Stamford Bridge on the weekend as well. That's that's a man who was hoping for a final minute offside. Uh, another crazy game at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea two goals up but conceding a 90-second minute equaliser. Another three-hole draw, funnily enough, this time against Southampton. I mean, the same old issues persist when it comes to Frank Lampard's Chelsea. Are we watching his final year in charge? You don't usually get long at Stamford Bridge, do you? Well, I said that at the start of the season, so I'm obviously going to say yes. I mean, no one likes the guy on the podcast who comes on all smug and says, I told you so, <laughs> and so I'm not going to be that. But, but, I, but <laughs> I did say, you know, Southampton is Southampton's a tough test because they're going to press you. They're going to cause moments like when Kai Havertz tries a little pirouette in his own half and misses one tackle after a player comes in, then a second and then a third comes in and they nick the ball and Danny Ings scores. So it, it's a it's a tough test, but you have to, surely you have to prep your team for that. You know, we we've we've all watched enough of Russ, you know, Ralph Hassan who's will Southampton to know that's how they're gonna play. And Chelsea just seem to play into their hands, as they often do under Frank Lampard. They seem to play in a way in that the opposition are gonna enjoy. They don't they never see you know, as an opposition fan, you you're surely gonna enjoy playing against Frank Lampard's Chelsea. You might concede a few, but you're gonna have a chance. You're always gonna have a chance. And I know this season's mad and et cetera, et cetera. I, I've got nothing against him. He seems like a lovely bloke, but I just don't, I just don't think he's got it to be Chelsea manager. I love how you get also flippant when you're talking about Lampard and Man United generally. 
Is well, I just, I'm no, just no, sticking just to my it. guns. I'm just sticking to my guns. I've just said it for quite a while, and I'm just trying not to, you know, dwell on the point. I've made, I've said that I don't think Frank Lampard is good enough for Chelsea, and I've said this will be his last season. Two things I, I want to say about Chelsea. One is that we've talked about leadership and Liverpool. Um, they massively missed a leader in defence. Um, you know, yet again we see uh, a ball go between Zuma and Christensen, and they're just looking at each other and going, "Hang on, shouldn't it have been you?" And the second thing. Um, I actually think Frank can count himself lucky to have got away with a point because um, Werner's one of Werner's goals should have been disallowed for a handball. He should have. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it hit his bicep clearly, and it was weird that they didn't review it. And I, I think with VAR, look, they, they're going to going to need to start giving out explanations on a Monday. To be perfectly honest, as to how they came to certain conclusions, I just think that's fair. I just think that's right. You know, they're not the only sport in the world that has issues with video refereeing or whatnot but at least the others come out and explain it and everyone can disagree but at least they've been given some sort of explanation we, we get nothing it would, have, it would have been a shame I suppose I mean you know I imagine all I can think that happened is the VAR was just so mesmerised by Werner's all round skill and performance that he just thought you know God, it would just be so wrong to disallow a goal of such majesty but I mean you know it, it should have been disallowed there's no question about it Werner is excellent he's one of the few bright points I would say for Chelsea so far this season but I mean you have to I have I have said I wouldn't go back to it but now I am but we have to look at Frank Lampard and his choices at Chelsea you know a month or so ago Jorginho was out the squad out the team and seemingly out the club there was talk of him moving on and then I think there was a game against Crystal Palace where he was brought on basically just to keep the ball when again they looked like they might concede three or four against Crystal Palace and throw away I think they won 3-2 in that game I think they just about held on but he he was brought on to keep the ball and now he's suddenly back in the team all the time. I just don't feel like he knows what he's doing. And if if you were to draw parallels with Manchester United and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Frank has the downside that unlike Solskjaer, who we believe wanted Sancho and Upper Meccano and all these kind of players that the fans have been crying out for, Chelsea have got them. Santiago Silva in defence, Ben Chilwell at left-back, Kai Havertz, one of the most talented young midfielders in the in Europe. Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech is on the bench. Like, they're, 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 their attackers are ludicrous. But they've still got the... Zuma and Christensen at centre-half. Yeah, they have. But they've also got Angolo Kante in midfield as well, one of the best midfielders in Europe. Surely you can't be shipping this many goals and looking so open against any team, whether it's West Brom. You know, they conceded three against West Brom. No offence to West Brom fans, but blooming heck... I think all West Brom fans were shocked at that, weren't they? I mean, it it just doesn't. I just don't get it. I don't get it, and I don't see where he doesn't look. He still don't see what his system is, what his plan is. If comparing with Solskjaer, Solskjaer's got one plan. We all know what it is, and that stopped working. I don't know whether Frank's ever even settled on a system, formation, style of play, other than try and score but leave yourself. You know, it's Kevin Keegan esque. It's, it's bonkers. You see the number of goals that they've conceded and it's just, you know, three against West Brom, you know, three against Southampton at home. You know, that is not good enough. Did you see the stat that it took, I think, 63 goals in 43 games and it took, that to, to concede that many, it took Mourinho 115 games. It's like, it is pretty, it's the worst, it's the worst, Chelsea's worst defensive record really in sort of modern history. Um one one kind of peculiarity I was reading was that he, only Manchester City have conceded fewer shots. So I think there is something in the, you know, as Tom's saying, in, 
is sort of uh, happy to say the the system. There's something is Jorginho and Kante together is not working for them. It, somehow, despite those two players playing in midfield together, they managed to have to leave vast unmanned space and be played through and cut open at will. Um, but there is, you know, there is something about the and this again comes back to the the imbalance of the recruitment, the errors with Kepa and Zuma and uh, Christensen has been known to as well. You know, they're set pieces. There is, you know, there is that, but that that again ties alongside the kind of imbalance of the the recruitment. So, you know, it's partly systemic and it's partly to do with they've got defenders who shouldn't be in Chelsea's backline, basically. I think one of the things with Kante is not to play him as a, a midfielder that just gets around, you know, almost like box to box. I know they want a, a better ball player as the pivot, but but ultimately he's the player that should be protecting the two defenders, two centre-backs. And the idea that he is not the one who is directly in front of them and that he's slightly further forward negates probably the best part of his game, which is winning the ball back in key areas. You know, and, and until they change that around and, and understand that he might not be as good a passer as the other midfielders they have, and he might not be as as intuitive in terms of setting off attacks as the other midfielders that, that they have. But their defence needs him the most. And so they, you know, all this talk about falling out with Lampard and whatnot, I, you know, I don't know if there's any truth in that, except for the fact that N'Golo Kante might be thinking, what's the, what's the point of me being here if I'm not playing in my best position and at my best? And that is a world-class central midfielder. doesn't matter how you look at it. If you can't get the best out of him, then you probably shouldn't be the Chelsea boss. I know we're saying about centre-backs and things, but if you look at Antonio Conte won the title with Chelsea and he had these, the only defenders he's missing is a retired John Terry. And all right, we'll bring that Gary Cahill then. That's going to sort it. I mean, you know, like he played a back three. It was the last time Chelsea have had a system that actually works and their squad was significantly less talented. So I, I'm not saying that Kurt Zuma is a world-class defender and I'm not saying that that doesn't give me at least a smidgen of sympathy for Frank. But I don't think you can't say, "Oh well, you bring in a world class centre back, and that'll imp- that'll sort it," because he still doesn't know what system he's playing, or formation, or style of play, and they're still going to be quite cavalier when they're three one up. I mean, I feel I'm heading into vendetta territory here. Right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should give Southampton some credit too, though. I mean, they were excellent. They were excellent, as you say. The second half, in particular, were brilliant. They never stop, and they're going to press you. But, they, but we all know that. We know we know how Southampton are going to play. Oh, I mean, exactly. I mean, Southampton, I think, score their highest volume of goals in the kind of what Hasenhutl calls the red zone, where where defenders give up mistakes, um, and uh, and that's basically it. You know, if it's Southampton, it's a field day. If you're Danny Ings and, and you're seeing, oh, good defender might slip up here. Oh, they might make a misplaced pass here. He's going to be all over you. So, um, but I thought it was interesting, you know, it's never a good sign when you're fielding three goalkeepers in a season and we're only five games into a season. Um, I think the the defence can't have any kind of stability when the goalkeeper, you don't know who's going to be behind you. Big problems for Frank at Stamford Bridge, uh, particularly when it comes to that defence. I wonder if he'll solve it, and particularly a big game coming up in the Champions League. We'll discuss that next. But a reminder, so much to read on it in the Times. Another top weekend of football and a big week ahead of us. Uh, to enjoy all of our award-winning journalism, head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. You can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times today and get one month free. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. 
flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now let's look ahead to the Champions League, which returns this week. Of course, it's always a great competition. Plenty of great games as well. On week one, Chelsea host Sevilla, Manchester United go to Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City take on Porto and Liverpool visit Ajax. The last word in the Times focuses on which English team is going to go furthest and we will discuss that in a few moments time. But firstly, I did want to assess for those of us that haven't had a keen eye on European football so far this season, what some of the other big clubs on the continent are currently doing and who might be favourites going into this. To join us, the Times, Ian Hall. Hello, Ian. And firstly, I just wanted to ask you, you know, there are so many great clubs in European action, but who out of those big teams at the moment has impressed you most? Well, I I think the last final was, after all, less than two months ago. So I think we have to probably start with the holders, Bayern Munich, who have started their domestic season with with, with one blip. They've dropped points already, which um, which is not something they're in a habit of doing for for most of the year. But they still look very strong indeed. Lewandowski is scoring an enormous number of goals still. And they have depth. They have, they have dynamism. You know, they're a lovely side to watch, as we know from the last tournament. So, so I think you'd probably have to start with them as favourites. Even more so, in a way, because some of the traditional big hitters, particularly in Spain, are in some difficulties. Real Madrid have not spent any money at all and they lost at the weekend, and they, they, they look a bit more defensively fragile than they did last season. Barcelona, as we all know, are in various, various bits of discomfort at the moment. So, so I'd go with Bayern. And, and, and looking at Italy, I think Juventus are also perhaps not quite what they were, and they've got a very inexperienced manager, Andrea Pirlo. So so they'll be interesting to see how they get on under him. Do you feel like it's a, a more open year then for English teams than it has been in, in previous years? Uh, well, I think, it, first of all, Premier League teams would have to hope so because last season they didn't do very well. Um, 
So they would, they, they've got ground to make up. I mean, last season was really quite, quite below standard for, for the English teams. Uh, I think, and, and everybody will be saying this, it's a more open season generally because, because of the calendar, because there's so much uncertainty, because of playing in front of no or tiny crowds. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's refreshingly open. That would be the optimistic way of looking at it. There are those that think at this stage, and I wonder what your opinion is on it, that flying and having players flying all over Europe is probably a bad thing to do at this time. And I, I wonder if there is just a little bit of you that thinks the Champions League might be at risk at some point. Absolutely. Um, you know, all the, all the evidence is that, first of all, flying around um, huge distances um, is... Is, is a high risk thing to do. It's also, it's also a slightly tasteless thing to do, really, um, if you think about what most of the audiences of football are having to, to bear at the moment. Um, and, and yes, you know, there is, there's enormous concern. There was an enormous concern during the international break, and we probably still don't know the full extent of possible infections um, during that period. Um, several games already are, are compromised by the absence of players from for quarantining reasons at the moment. Um, and, and, and the other thing is, uh, there's, there's, there's utter confusion and inconsistency in a way about spectators. We will be watching, most likely, as things stand, some English teams during the course of the next few weeks playing in stadiums where fans are allowed in limited numbers. Um, for most of Western Europe at the moment, that's not the case. But UEFA have allowed, in theory, 30% of stadiums to be full. And in some Eastern European countries, you know, they are, they are intent on pursuing that. Um, and, you know, some people will feel uncomfortable about that, obviously. Our thanks to Ian Hawkey there. Uh, just taking a look ahead to this week's return of the Champions League. Should be another great season in Europe. Uh, the last word in the Times uh, focuses on which English team might go furthest. Let's just assess that. James, you, you've been working on this. Who do you think it might be? Uh, it's, it's a very difficult question, Hugh, um, because I think you can point to positives and flaws with each team. Um, I don't think Chelsea and Manchester United, for the reasons we've discussed, um, are, are going to go particularly far in the competition. Uh, I think Liverpool are... It's so hard if Van Dijk is out for the vast majority of the competition, it's so hard to see them um, going far because I think there's a one trend of Champions League knockout stages is you need to be able to keep clean sheets and you need to, uh, it's, it's often the teams that are best defensively rather than the teams that are the best offensively necessarily who uh, do well in the Champions League. Um, uh, there obviously are some exceptions to that. Um, so by that really, if uh, if Man City can get more settled in defence, I think Ruben Diaz showed what he can do over the weekend against Arsenal. I thought it was a fantastic performance from him. I'd probably be going with Manchester City because if they can get that solid platform, um, they've got a, they've got a world class goalkeeper in um, in Edison. Don't forget as well, and an array of attacking uh, creative talent. I think if Manchester City's team can gel and the new signings can work. Um, I think uh, I think City have got the best chance. Will they go on to win it? Uh, I don't know. I I I I wouldn't I wouldn't want to hazard a prediction at this stage. Tom, your prediction? I think Liverpool are still the best English team in it, even without Virgil Van Dijk. And in a strange way, 
almost takes the pressure off slightly. You know, they won it two seasons ago. They won the Premier League last season. I think Pep Guardiola is under so much pressure with this competition, isn't he? And at Manchester City, in many ways, the Champions League and Manchester City and whether he can get them close to a final will largely define his managerial reputation broadly. You know, he he, he built that reputation at Barcelona. And last season when they were knocked out by Leon, there was already the mutterings of question marks about his true pedigree in Europe. Nonsense, if you ask me, of course. But that, that does feed in to a mindset that it, it puts them under a lot of pressure. You saw that pressure last season. They still don't feel quite settled. I think James is right. Ruben Diaz does look like a good signing, but I still think there's there's uh, there's problems at the back. Liverpool, I think in their group, they should progress nice and comfortably. I would still make them English favourites for me. And I'm not even going to mention the other two. <laughs> I guess Gregor's going to go for Man United or Chelsea then. I think Man United will do well to emerge from the group, to be honest. Um Obviously, PSG and Leipzig in there. It's a tough one. Uh, I think Chelsea will progress, but beyond that, I agree. I don't think, yeah, for the reasons we've discussed, they've got no chance. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think Liverpool are still the best team in England. I think, as as we've said, we, only time will tell how, how much of a blow and how they re- respond to the loss of Van Dijk. Um, but I still think, despite all that, they have... The most kind of, I think you know what we saw in last 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 season's competition was that that kind of high intensity, full throttle pressing in Bayern Munich were the were the best team by a country mile, and Liverpool was still the closest thing to that. And I think that's still the most effective way of winning European football at the moment. So um, for that, I think Manchester United, uh, Manchester City, sorry, they're still not the same kind of pressing outfit that they once were. That's kind of malfunctions somewhere along the line. Um, so f- for that reason, I think Liverpool are, are going to be the best place still. So Hugh, any any confidence, any excitement about this week? The boys back against pa- Paris Saint-Germain. Ollie's happiest night. Surely it's got to bring back some good memories at least, hasn't it? Confident? I am not confident, no. And uh, listen, I think it'll be good for Man United if they finish third in the group and get some Europa League games, you know, bring some money in, frankly, because if they go to the knockouts there, what I'm most worried about and, and what I said when Manchester United qualified is, you know, we're all taking the mick out of Tottenham getting beaten 7-2. You know, Man United are going to have one of those in the Champions League this year. They're going to get battered by someone, if they, especially if they get to the knockout stage. So the hope is that we can keep it tight against Paris Saint-Germain in these two games and, and, and exit the competition with a modicum of respect, frankly. The one thing you've got going for you is that this Champions League football does suit Ollie's one one tactic. Get Fred, McTominay, pack the midfield. Go on, Marcus, in you go, down the channels. Let's try and nick it. I think there is also something to be said. We're also talking about the Champions League. There's, there's something to be said for English teams having potential success in the Europa League. I know it's often seen as the, the smaller competition, the lesser competition. But Jose Mourinho's Tottenham, as long as he can stop shipping three goals in the last nine minutes, I think they've got a chance. I'm quite interested and excited to see Gregor's favourite boys, Mikel Arteta's Arsenal as well. I think there's something to be said about that competition being a being a quiet and cheeky little prize for some of those teams. I think English teams as a whole are going to have a big issue in Europe this year because the season is is shortened in terms of time scale. We've got more games to play than the other European leagues. We've got more cups 
in the shape of three instead of two than other European leagues and more teams in the Premier League than than other big leagues. So I think it's going to be difficult for us. You know, ultimately, time to rest might be the most important factor in terms of going deep into the season. And in, injuries will play a part as well. And, you know, as it stands, I can't see an English team winning one of those tournaments because of the sheer number of games that we are going to have to play. Um, but in terms of the English teams going furthest, I would have said before Van Dijk's injury that Liverpool are going to go furthest. But now I, I'll lean, I, I lean towards City because I think you will be exposed more in the Champions League without a Virgil van Dijk than you would have been without. Um, there are exceptional players and teams in, in the Champions League. Um, and look, there there is pressure on Pep. I don't think they're going to win it again. And I don't think an English club... I, if we get an English club to the quarterfinals, I'll, I'll be quite happy with that, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I think that'll probably be Liverpool. I think City might make the last eight Brutal. as well. Um, Brutal. Who's winning it then? No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying I'd be happy about it. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that I don't no, think well, it will happen. No, well, I'm with happen, you. I'm with but you. I'm but just I'd... saying I, I, I'd be happy about it because I can't see us, I can't see us winning it this year. Well, I love a prediction. Come on, who's winning it? I'm going Atletico Madrid. Simeone, finally, finally, with the help of Luis Suarez, finally lifts the Champions League. And Kieran Trippier there, Trippier and Suarez lifting the Champions League. I can see it now. Beautiful scenes. I'd love Messi and, and Ronald Koeman to win it, which is clearly, you know, he's a Champions League Barcelona legend, Ronald Koeman, and Messi's final season, final match for the club, lifting the uh, Champions League would be amazing. So I, I think the romance in me would love them to win it because Messi's definitely leaving next summer. But um, but it's hard. It's very hard to look beyond Bayern Munich. Yeah, I'm no romantic. It's Bayern all day. <laughs> they were they were they were they were like some distance the best team in Europe last season, and I don't see enough that's changed. And I don't see enough that's changed in their opponents either, to be quite honest. Uh, I'm I'm in the Bayern Munich camp, although uh, I would I would I'd love to see uh, free scoring Atalanta smash their way to the Champions League final um, because I think they're a wonderful story. Equally, I'd love it if Borussia Dortmund won and Jude Bellingham had a Champions League medal a year after leaving Birmingham City, which would be incredible. Um, but look, the Champions League will provide us with. I think a lot of the romance, it's just, I'm still, as I spoke to Ian about, I'm still doubtful that we'll get all the way through it, frankly. Well, we did see, didn't we, during the last international break and um, sort of an increase in players testing positive for COVID. It's, it's really hard to control when everyone's travelling over Europe. And, and that was even with, in a lot of cases, no fans in, in stadiums. I, I just think it's it's going to be increasingly hard to, to manage. And the, the, the worry, I guess, is the knock-on for the domestic league if we then have to have postponements in league matches with large numbers of players testing positive. Um, and, and, you know, I think the rules currently say that you can play a match uh, as long as you've got 13 or 14 outfield players. I need to check, I need, I'd need to check that, but, it, but, but it, it would either way, you either lead to large numbers of postponements or a, or a further distortion of a competition that we've already seen has been pretty crazy this season already. They might not have test and trace systems sorted, but governments across Europe will be desperate for the Champions League to carry on. Because if football stops, then there's a lot of political parties that are going to be coming under even more scrutiny than they are already. We need desperately need football to have something to talk about, don't we? So I, I, I'm, I'm a massive cynic on that. I think we'll, we'll exist in two parallel worlds where football carries on, even if the whole rest of the world grounds to a halt. Uh, just before we go, a prediction, I think. And we've got to do the prediction. Manchester United against Paris Saint-Germain. We've beaten them before, so, you know... <laughs> what do you think will happen this time? Because I was, look, I was fearful for Harry Maguire versus Mbappe, basically. <laughs> and I don't want to see him, you know, 
get I torn think, apart. But I think after our conversation last week, we should probably give Harry Maguire a bit of credit as well. Yes. For yeah. For playing and stepping up, and obviously a goal helped. So great. Um, but yeah, you might you might take another blow to his confidence <laughs> against Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm almost being contrarian with myself here, but this is all. This is the only game in which Solskjaer works. I could. I think they might get a point. I think they might get a point. Play three at the back, McTominay, Fred in midfield, Fernandez, and you know Rashford as the only two attacking players. Nick a point. Every time there's a run of fixtures and you think if this next three or four games goes badly, Solskjaer's definitely gone. And usually we win all those matches. So it should be Man United winning the next three or four games. Uh, listen, we haven't got any time left, guys, but appreciate you being with me. Thank you to James Restall, Gregor Robertson, and Tom Clark. A reminder, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the footballing world. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and you can get one month free. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.